Hi, I'm Diane Chandler. And I'm Perry Grossman. And this is Own Your Throne. Ladies, your life is not over. You are just at the beginning of reigniting and redefining your life. And through this show, you will meet inspiring women who have recreated and redefined what it really means to thrive and age gracefully. Our guests are some of the most inspiring women on the planet. We were honored to sit down with each of them and get real about their own journeys and what it took for them to truly own their throne. Hi, everybody. I'm Perry Jones Grossman, along with my co-host, Diane Chandler, and welcome to Own Your Throne podcast. We are so excited today. I know you hear us say that a couple times, but this one particularly, right, Di? We're just so excited because she's like our spiritual mama. She's one of the pioneers that you all have a wonderful opportunity to hear this amazing teacher because the theme of this show is called Flourishing in the Madness. And I think that's really apropos. How about you, Di? Yes. Yes, yes. Yes. She's not talking much today. She says, yes, yes. Well, by the way, I know, well, we always kind of do a little banter. We check in because as you guys know, we can't record this together like we used to. Di's in San Diego, California, and I'm in Ketchum, Idaho. How are you doing, honey? Oh, I'm doing good this week. I mean, it's been a long week. As you know, my nephew has been in the ICU with a brain tumor, but they got it out. And yeah, they got it out and he's still there, but he's steadily improving. So we feel very hopeful. So I'm breathing better. Yeah. And then I'm planning for next weekend, my friend's 50th birthday party. And so we're having a big surprise for her next Saturday. And this podcast will come after. So it's fine that I say that. <laughs> yeah. No, but, but anyway, that's, yeah. that's awesome. And you know what, I'm just going to do a little shout out because I know we have some amazing listeners out there who are prayer warriors. So I'm going to just on behalf of my wonderful friend who I adore my whole heart and just ask you guys to lift some prayers up for Clay. And um, he's fighting for his life. And we do know that God is in the miracle business. And we're just going to believe in that, Die. We're just going to hold him up, you know, sending good thoughts and, and lots of love and healing his way. Spirit does that. So just wanted to say that to you. And I don't have much this week other than, you know, I got over, my son went to, uh, he's now ski racing in Austria. So there's an empty bedroom in my house. So it's just my girl, Sab and I, and uh, we're having some fun. You know, I'm excited for him on his journey. Um, And then my boyfriend's coming back. I'm so excited. He's been in San Francisco for a couple of weeks and he's driving back in and we're going to do a little road trip. Uh, leaving this Friday for a week just to get out and, you know, try to, so fun. yeah, just change of scenery a little bit. Driving. We're driving everyone. So I don't, I, no, no worries. <laughs> We're driving. But anyway, I'm going to go on to the show because this lady is so special. She and I have been friends for many years. We've had her visit with Sun Valley Wellness and other festivals, and and she was also on some other programs that we had. But Dr. Joan Barsenko is a distinguished pioneer in integrative medicine, is a world-renowned expert in the mind-body connection. Her work has been foundational in an international healthcare revolution that recognizes the role of meaning and the spiritual dimensions of life as an integral part of health and healing. 
I love to call Joan as the credible bridge between faith and science for your best health. Dr. Borshenko earned her doctorate in medical sciences from the Harvard Medical School, but after the death of her father from cancer, she became more interested in the person with the illness than in the disease itself. In the early 1980s, Dr. Borsenko co-founded a mind-body clinic with Dr. Benson and Dr. Elon Cutts, became licensed as a psychologist, and was appointed instructor in medicine at the Harvard Medical School. Her years of clinical experience and research culminated in the 1987 publication of the New York Times bestseller, Minding the Body, Mending the Mind, which sold over 400,000 copies. The author or co-author of 16 other books and numerous audio and video programs, she's the founding partner of Mind Body Health Sciences. Her current work is a legacy project that encompasses all her research and teachings in an integrative approach to personalized wellness and recovery developed with colleague Dr. Gila Rosner. Dr. Joan, we just want to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. One of my questions, first questions for you is, you know, you said that we're living in an archetypal hero's journey together and that the old order is actually crumbling, right? And we're in a new transitional stage. It's the time of, and I love this phrase, dieted to the time between no longer and not yet, So, Joan, the big question is, where are we moving into? Well, (laughs) hopefully. (laughs) I think it's so important to keep the faith. We're clearly in liminal space. The old is like so gone. It's really remarkable how we have been stopped in our tracks. And maybe a good thing, because we were tracking too fast I think people were so busy and there was so much focus on consumerism that we had forgotten that we're part of nature, that the thing most of us really love the best is the company of one another. There wasn't enough time to reflect. This is one of many different levels of what, you know, how we've suddenly stopped and in this great pandemic pause, as it's sometimes been called, we get a chance to look for ourselves personally. What is the tipping point? Mm. If you were to envision, I'll take the Charles Eisenstein's book title, The More Beautiful World That Your Heart Knows Is Possible, what would that look like? And on, you know, on a huge spectrum, Uh, of concern. What is my own life personally? What's going on in my family, my community, my nation? Uh, We know from things that have been happening here for many, actually many hundreds of years, that, that we need to take some lessons from the indigenous people uh, who were once here, who lived in harmony with the land. And we need to create a society that works for us all, all religions, all ethnicities, all colors of human beings. And I think what we're seeing now, in a way, is our collective ego has been slain. The great Mm -hmm. ego slayer in the sky has come down, and no matter who you are, 
there's suffering uh, associated with it. And the, if, if, here's, here's an image that I really like. My own image of a just, sustainable world where people are kind and compassionate to each other. That's my vision of where we're going. And I have to say that in order for a vision to be, really to be true in your mind, you have to be able to feel like what that vision would be like. And what I'm experiencing is what I see so much around me is that vision, but also a lot of things that oppose that vision. Mm-hmm. And that's the old ego coming up. Like it's, we all know this from spiritual work. The ego does not go lightly, trip lightly into the night. It takes, takes a big blow to even begin to make a dent until we recognize what are our own illusions, what are our own delusions. And uh, this pandemic time has given us that chance because most everybody I know is anxious or depressed (laughs) to some degree, regardless of how much spiritual work they've done, Mm -hmm. how much therapy they've done, and so many things are happening. And, you know, in my own little corner of the world, my son Andre's home in the mountains of Santa Cruz burned to the ground August 18th. Oh, no. And the day before that, it's, I know, it's, it's really, it's a challenge, but he's on a vision quest. He's in the place between no longer and not yet. His father, who was living with him at the time, barely escaped with his life. Um, he was alone in the house at that time. My kids also lived down in Costa Rica, so they were in Costa Rica. But he didn't wake up until the neighbor's propane tank exploded and fled with the shirt on his back when the house was already on fire. And, of course, this is not an isolated incident. You look what's happening in so much of particularly Northern California, Oregon, and Washington, that we have this tremendous migration. And of course, a big part of that is climate change, which is you know, drying out the, um, the forests, it's hot. And so just as the fire started there, that was the CZU Lightning Complex fire. A fire started here just a mile and a half from our home. We, it looked like it was one ridge over, because we live also in the foothills of the Sangre de Cristo um, mountains. And this has been going on. The fire was officially contained four days ago. So it's been a long fire. It's been intensely, intensely smoky. We were packed to evacuate for almost three weeks. And as I speak to people, um, you know, either, God forbid, someone in your family has COVID or somebody has lost their job and has no way of making a living or there's a fire a flood. <laughs> There's something else going on. And I started during um, the month of the fire to think to myself, hmm, I feel like 
every day another shoe drops. And I started to play with this image of a centipede with, you know, thousands of shoes, all in little silk slippers. Oh. And it would drop one, drop one, drop one. And I thought, well, it's very much like the um, another vision quest story, which was the story of Inanna who went to the underworld. And at all of the seven gates to the underworld, she had to give up a piece of her ego. She had to give up her identity until finally she was all of her false selves and masks and all of that had fallen off. And then the last thing <laughs> that happened was that her sister, Ereshkigal, the queen of the underworld, actually killed her. And there she was hanging from a meat hook in hell. And I think that's how a lot of people are feeling right now. Wow. And this was all arranged by someone <laughs> that she was herself a goddess, but she was continuing to study and evolve. She was studying with the sun god. She was studying the art of love. And she really had to die and re be reborn again in order to claim that lesson. And so I tend to think in archetypal terms, yes, it's a hero's journey of which there are three parts. Every good movie, um, adventure movies, have a hero's journey script. And that is the hero is separated from life. You know, if you're going to the underworld one way or another, as we all have. Then you dwell in this time between no longer and not yet, the liminal space. And that's traditionally, it's a very, it's full of danger and full of possibility because we've seen the danger. People die in liminal space. They become depressed. You know, they, they lose their way in one way or another. And it's an uncomfortable place to be. It's a place of uncertainty. And we human beings are not wired neurologically to like uncertainty. We'd much prefer if we're in control. Mm -hmm. and I, I'm hearing you say is like it's the divine unknowing. It's that it's that surrendering to what is right now, and being okay yeah. with that. And I think that and being okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And what I you know what I find is that. Uh, this is, I mean, this is a time when we really need the shelter of each other to dwell in the unknown, to surrender to that, Diane. And not only do we need um, one another, but we need mentors, we need allies. Nobody gets through this very well by themselves. And then you get to the point, hopefully, where you've learned something about generosity. You've learned something about your own illusions and beliefs. You've learned something about uh, compassion and the and empathy for other people. And then when you come out, that's called the return. That's the third part of the journey. So I think we're poised for the return. We're poised <laughs> for well, hopefully, we're not quite there yet, but maybe seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. Well, I, yeah. a question leading to that, and what you were just saying is, you know, it's requiring a lot of us 
to be at our best and it's bringing up the shadow side and it's bringing up the, the positive side, our spirit side. How can we keep having faith and hope that all this chaos that we're in, in the world and in our lives, that it will get better? How do we keep our faith up and our hope? I think that's, that, that's the biggest question. Did you ever listen to Karen Drucker's music, by the way? I did. Um, I Karen heard the song, is, yes, yes. They must have played it at USM because she, her music is great. When I, I used to do a lot of women's retreats with her, and we would promise people that they'd live with a faith, they'd leave with a faith lift. I <laughs> 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 oh, love it. <laughs> it's, you know, it's music that lifts us up, and her, her lyrics are so wonderful. Mm-hmm. Takes all the things that we've learned on the spiritual path, and she puts them to music. They're like mantras and earworms that keep repeating inside of you. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's important if you're going to maintain hope to be, you know, first of all, in connection with other people who are hopeful. Mm-hmm. It's so easy right now to have a pity party instead, you know, or to sit around and think what awful thing will happen next, what shoe will drop and who is to blame? <laughs> so we've had enough of that. Uh, so the shelter of one another, kind of sangha, what the Buddhists would call sangha, is so important. And that's really part of what you're doing with this wonderful podcast, Piri and Diane, is creating sangha, a place for people to take refuge for a while and to think about hopeful things in terms of all of those concentric circles of goodness in our life that we were talking about uh, before. So I think that's important. I think it's extremely important in a time of uncertainty like this to think about what you can do to make a difference. Mm -hmm. And I know that's incredibly frustrating for people thinking what can what can I do and uh, you know for example right now the main thing is get out the vote whichever way you're leaning whatever future you envision it's going to happen because people said I am important my vote is important Uh, this country is important so whatever we can do to do that, to vote ourselves and to pass that message along to others or make it possible in other ways, I think it's also possible to give people hope. And, you know, no, we think in a little the big ways, you know, just a note of encouragement to a friend in trouble, mm-hmm. somebody who, uh, you know, it's like, after my son's house burned down and uh, that got around, I was so uplifted. My hope was so uplifted by the wonderful messages I got from other people. And that was great. And then one other thing I think is extremely important is this. You know, when we, we see on the news and we know people personally who have lost their sources of income, um, when we see, oh my goodness, like artists in Santa Fe, 
uh, I have some friends who are artists and their galleries are shut. Can you buy a piece of work now to help them get through, for example? There are all kinds of things we can do to support people that we actually know. And then what I hear so often with so many people is, what have I got to complain about? My house did not burn down. I still have enough money to live. I didn't get COVID. And yeah, it's nice to count your blessings, but I also think it's important to recognize this is a time of really of madness and breakdown and chaos and pandemonium. And if you happen to feel anxious or depressed, and more and more people are, do not say to yourself, oh, I don't have a right to feel this way. Other people have bigger losses. Uh, our losses are our losses, whatever they may be, how small they may be. And, you know, as you know, one of the hats I wear is neuroscience. And this, is, <laughs> this has been a time where it's been very helpful for me to have a, not only a doctorate from Harvard Medical School, but three postdocs, yeah. one of which is in psychoneuroimmunology. So I understand what goes on with people's immune responses and what goes on when we lose hope in our brain and we start to tell ourselves stories that are you know fatalistic stories that erase possibility when we begin to criticize ourselves like what have i got to be depressed about other people you know have it much worse we can't be at our best if we're doing that and it's a time to simply name what we're feeling. And the neuroscience of that, you know, you've probably heard from Dan Siegel, the famous tagline, name it to tame it. If you just say, hmm, I am, I've got a low-level depression going. When Michelle Obama did that, that was so helpful to really millions of women mm -hmm. to say, oh my God, Michelle Obama is feeling depressed. I guess it's okay for me to admit yeah, that I'm not vulnerable and depressed myself. Mm -hmm. And uh, so when you name it, you tame it. It actually uh, helps, helps you get out of the, the limbic system of the brain, the survival system, when you're not thinking right. And in that state, you tell your worst stories. You tell your default pessimistic stories. And that is not good for hope. So name it to tame it. It sounds very strange, isn't it? To just own that I feel anxious or I feel depressed or I'm worried or whatever it may be, that that actually will calm down your negative emotions and allow you to have greater freedom of choice in terms of, well... What do I hope for? What can I work for? What can I do? And that's, that's really powerful. I think I, first of all, want to thank you for saying the one part where you were sharing about, you know, just because you have a lot to be grateful for or your life externally looks, looks fine, looks good, that I used to really struggle with that 
and even before I went to USM, it was like I had this beautiful external life and who am I to have to really feel these depths that I'm feeling of sadness or whatever that could be. And it was almost like I felt like I had to apologize for it for the longest time. I didn't have the right to feel those things. Mm. And so, and, and yeah, and being able to just say, we're all having a human experience. We all have the exact mm-hmm. same feelings and emotions and it's completely fine. And it's powerful to get to, to, to hear you say it in those words, because it just reminded me like, yeah, there are so many times in a day I'm so grateful, but I'm also sad at times. And that's yes, yeah, and that's okay too because that's you know that's the nature of being human, that's the common humanity that we all share. You know, when I allow myself to be spacious enough to hold both the gratitude and the fear and the disappointment and the anxiety and all of those other things at once, that is quintessentially human. That's okay. It's so powerful to give ourselves permission to accept both sides of ourselves. You know, I had a thought about probably the two words that have helped me go through these changes. One is resilience and the other one is forgiveness. And I understand resilience. I've I've been through a lot of challenges in my life. So I, I feel like I have that down really well. The part that I'm having a hard time with, and we touched on it a little bit earlier, is forgiveness for the leadership in our country right now. And I don't mean, you know, anyone particular, any party in particular, but I'm disappointed in how the pandemic was not correctly addressed. I'm disappointed in all the divisiveness that's happened amongst one another and all the anger and all the fighting that's occurring amongst all of us. And then I see leaders that are, I feel like they're fanning the flames or they're fueling the flames rather than calming people down and giving them reassurance. And I know I'm not the only one who feels this way. I know there's many and how would you, as a spiritual leader and a thought leader, address this with people on how can they find that forgiveness and come to a loving space as part of their healing and also as a part of taking action? Because we all don't want to just sit around and not do anything. There's a lot of us that want to take action and do something and make a difference, but doing it in coming from a loving place rather than an angry place or a place of non-forgiveness. This is a great question, and very truly, just about everybody I know is asking this question, Perry. I have have several levels of comments. One level is forgiveness takes time. It's, it's, It's not an easy thing to do. Many of us have been working on forgiving certain situations for many years, and we realize it's like an onion. We keep peeling off a layer and a layer. It's not a a simple matter of, okay, you know, I'll do a practice of Tonglen. I'll send loving kindness to my enemies. That's all helpful, sometimes difficult, but but helpful. You know, once uh, it's a very interesting thing to send loving kindness to someone who you have a very specific 
issues with. Um, but it's a, it's a good practice. But right now, I truly think we're in, we're in liminal space between no longer and not yet. And this is a time that we grieve for what, we're, what has been lost. Uh, and it helps us to name those things that we value most that may have not, not been so clear to us before. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, we're, and the task right now is to grieve uh, and to allow ourselves to grieve. And anger is often part of grieving. While at the same time, I'm angry, people I know are angry, but I know much more what I really value. And, you know, it's a, <laughs> there, I, I have this turn of phrase, and that is when you know something intellectually, but it's just intellectual. It's not yet embodied. Mm-hmm. And then something happens. And my phrase is it goes ka-ching. It goes from an abstract mental concept to an embodied present reality that is so obvious. And this is what's happening right now for a lot of us. So for example, having lived like a lot of Californians, I lived in a terrible toxic smoke situation for almost a month. I'd say half of every day was taken up figuring out the smoke mitigation for the day, moving around HEPA filters, finding, okay, there's a window of an hour or two when the smoke outside is less than the smoke in my house. Can I open my windows and stand by because I got to shut them the minute the wind shifts? And I'll tell you, I have never been so grateful for clean air. I mean, it's like, who, who doesn't wish for clean air? But it went ka-ching. And now it's something that I feel, okay, I have a new calling. And it, it has to do with everything having to do with clean air. And the good thing about, about anger is that it's energizing. And so... If your grief can help you kind of clarify what it is that you most want at this time, mm-hmm. your anger can actually give you the life force energy to fight for it. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, it's like a conversion, it's an alchemical transmutation of anger about a larger thing. I mean, how can you not be angry uh, about the wanton, really wanton bungling of the response to COVID? Not just that it was ignored, but almost that there was malevolence in the ignoring, um, that people were simply put at more risk. And that's really difficult. But it, it for a lot of people, is clarifying for them, what is health? Who are the authorities on health? Who's got my back? How can I have my own back? How can I find real sources of information? Because one of the things we need most to flourish in the madness is to know that somebody has our backs. Somebody is, has facts <laughs> and an action plan based on facts and that's, that's important. That's another part of own mission, having, you know, having run a, a clinic 
for people with cancer, AIDS, and stress-related illnesses at um, two of the different Harvard Medical School teaching hospitals for, you know, over a decade. Healthcare is really close to my heart. And from the beginning of this pandemic, I put out blogs, I do Facebook postings, um, trying to tell people what the facts are to the extent that they are known. And uh, for me, I think one of the most frightening things that I've seen lately is the Center for Disease Control, the CDC website, which we've come to expect actual real scientific data there, that people with vested interests began to post things there that were completely untrue and dangerous to the public health. And that for me is like a breach too far. So I have taken my anger again and just say, I'm grieving for the loss of facts. And if it kills me, I will get the facts out there to the best that I can. I'm trained as a scientist. Uh, you know, I'm also trained as a psychologist and my interest is spirituality. But I will use any or all of those to really help people say, okay, just look, just look, be mindful, be present, look, can you see that 200,000 people are dead? Mm -hmm. Why is that? Is there a better way? And it's, you know, that too is frustrating because not everybody, um, none of us can reach very many people. So you can't be attached to the results either. And as you said, God is in the miracle business. And if one person like sees your podcast or if one person is touched by something that you do, Diane, that is a wonderful thing. And in, in a very real way, it's not under our control. All we can do is put out what we're really called to put out from the depths of our heart and give up control over where we think it's going to land. It feels like this time of like everyone is is going, what is true? Like really where, what is true? Where, and, and it's a time of like a lot of self-reflection and saying, you know, what is my truth? What are my values? Like what you were saying, what matters to me? What are my values? What matters to the whole? And what matters in my life? It's all of it. And I think people are really going inward because, you know, your truth is inside you, right? And you get all this information and you get it on both sides and then you're just going, wait, I live in crazy world. Like this has been happening for a few months now, right? You hear that. And then, and then everyone's like, wait, time out. And, you know, so I think that for me anyway, it's really a time of like, of going inward. And like you said, doing the outward work of voting and making a difference and being of service and getting involved. And then the inward work of like what you value and what really matters, you know? And I have this one question that follows up exactly what Diane was talking because I was really fascinated in one of your programs, you talk about the 24 character strengths mm -hmm. and you're talking about values and it 
and it helps you comprise the six virtues in us that you can actually take a test and find out what those virtues are or what those values are. So can you explain mm. a little bit more about that? Cause I think it ties in with what Diane is talking about is, you know, what are our values? What are our virtues? What are the things that are important to us that can help us guide us in our everyday lives? Well, that's, I mean, that is so very, very important. So let me tell your listeners, if they go to the website VIA, which is Values in Action, VIA.org, uh, they will get a site with videos and, you know, all kinds of wonderful uh, material that will teach you about this. And what this is, these character strengths are called, well, let me, let me give you a little history. Right after 9-11, a couple of psychologists looked and said, okay, let's take a look. Everybody looks at what is bad in terms of psychology. What's wrong with you? Why don't we look at what's right with you? and look at all the philosophies and religions of the world and see what their basic values are. And they came up, first of all, with six virtues. And, you know, we'll take the virtue of wisdom. That's an interesting question. What is wisdom? And they realize it is a constellation of certain values that you put into action if you are wise. And so they, there are six categories of virtues, and then somewhere between three and five character strengths, which are putting your values into action. Take a free test, takes 15 minutes, and they won't pepper you with emails afterwards. You'll get nothing from that. You'll get an email that tells you what your signature strengths are. And it's helpful because in times of stress, if you lead with the, your, your character strengths, your values in action, you will feel a lot better and you will feel an integrity. So your inside, Diane, that self-reflection will be in accord with what you're putting out on your outside. And to me, when the inside matches the outside, <laughs> you've got a coherent field of harmony that not only engenders health and good feelings in you, but goes forth because we're all energy beings. And it creates a space of peace and inspiration for others, which is really what we all want to be. We want to be those tuning forks of goodness that put out the good vibes. So, for example, my top five or seven character strengths. Um, one of them is the is gratitude. Uh, another is the appreciation of beauty and excellence. That's so important to me. I, I know I am such an appreciator of beauty that it puts me right into my core, puts me in a state of mindfulness and presence, or appreciating excellence. These last few days since Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, died, I have been in such a state of appreciating her excellence. 
the skills, the values, the discipline that woman put forward in this world. What a, what a hero. What an amazing being so true. she was. Uh, what a legacy she leaves. So another of my big character strengths is curiosity. Well, that's a, I, I could have thought of that, like curiosity. I'm not a scientist for nothing. It took me a, <laughs> you know, years of study. And I'm always fascinated. I want to know the latest thing that's known about, you know, what it, whether it's nutrition or neuroscience or um, climate change or whatever it may be. So if I lead with these, and I've used these strengths daily, really daily in trying to get through this um, pandemic, uh, it's... I'm very curious, uh, and so I want the facts. I'm always looking, what are the facts? Uh, the gratitude, I've done an exercise almost every night for 35 years that I think has made me as grateful as I am. And that came from the work of um, a Benedictine monk, Brother David Steindl Rast, who wrote a book called Gratefulness, the Heart of Prayer. With the idea, um, you know, that if if you this was an idea from a, a French mystic uh, Meister Eckhart, that if thank you was the only prayer you ever said, that would be enough, and that echoes a little bit of Jewish Kabbalah because it's about giving and receiving. The universe is always giving, and often it just rolls off of us. The goodness, we're so worried, you know, our survival circuits give rise to fear and worry and negativity. We don't take in the gifts of the universe. We're not completing that cycle. What Brother David's teaching was, he's also, now he must be close to 90, but for most of his life he was a Zen teacher as well as a Benedictine monk. But Brother David uh, says, Every night before you go to bed, notice one thing that happened during the day that really brought you fully into the moment that you really received. And when you feel, he doesn't use the word gratitude, he uses the word grateful because you feel the gratefulness, um, you're content, you, you know, you have all these wonderful, blissful feelings. This morning, it was when my puppy, Lola, <laughs> came up on the couch with me and just the tender, innocent puppy eyes, the incredible fluffy fur, the sense of stroking her. I, you know, I was starting to weep from just being with this puppy. And, you know, it might have been, it used to often be going out and seeing a stranger smile. You can't see it anymore because everybody's got a mask on. We live in a state where everyone is masked. You see nobody who is unmasked in public. It just doesn't happen. That's why we have very few cases. So New Mexico is a very safe state to be in right now. The little things, the slant right now, of the, um, the light coming through. I'm looking outside. People can't see because this is an audio podcast. But as I 
look outside, it's so beautiful to watch the way the light is coming in and the leaves are turning and there's a light breeze and uh, things are blowing in the breeze. And just to be present to that, good is raining down on us all the time, but it, it falls away. My very dear friend, Rick Hansen, who wrote books like Buddha's Brain, uh, and his, um, he's got a new book that's really interesting called Neurodharma, looking at the Buddhist teachings and neuroscience. Uh, he's also got some other wonderful books. Resilient is probably the single best book I've ever read to tell people, what do you do to hardwire your brain for the good? <laughs> so... You know, Brother David Steinville Rast was not aware of Rick Hansen's work, which is the same work. Notice something good and then hang out with it. Really feel it in your body, take it in with all your senses. And in about 20 seconds into this kind of savoring of your experience, you actually start to build new neural circuits. And that counters the innate negativity bias that the primate brain is born with. So we need the moments of the good. And what Brother David taught me 35 years ago is if you make the single commitment that as you're going to sleep, you'll bring back one of these moments of gratefulness that you experience during the day and hang out with it for about a minute, you know, really rerunning it in a sensory way. And it's, you know, there's no excuse that I can find not to do it. I'm trying to go to sleep anyhow. It's not taking me any extra time. And it's way more pleasant than like running my anxieties or tomorrow's to-do list. So I might as well do it. And I do my best to have that way that I fall asleep. And it has made it tremendous difference and it's cultivated this virtue of gratitude in a very real way i mean it helps to make a gratitude list but this is much more embodied it's a ka-ching thing and it's fresh mm-hmm. so joan i couldn't issue that um, I have a question. I'm going to pivot here a little bit because I, I'm, you're such a fascinating woman and you are so accomplished. And so I have a couple questions. Um, given on the heels of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and, and a lot of, I've been reading a lot about her in the last week and some of the things that she said. And her mother taught her that the most, you know, to use her brain in life and that was to be a real woman. And I thought, what a fabulous thing to be teach our children. And you are so similar to that. You have three or four doctorates from Harvard. You're a teacher. You are a pioneer, really, of, in the field of psychology. And you started in, tell me a little bit about how you started and what your mindset was. Like, how were you raised? No. <laughs> <laughs> No, I think it's the tension that forms us. My father always said things like, you have great manual dexterity and lots of compassion. You'd make a wonderful surgeon. There were no women surgeons back in the day. My mother said, 
You're really cute. Don't waste your time on that. Men don't like smart women. The whole point is marry somebody rich. So I had two very, very different sets of messages um, coming in. But, you know, I'd had an early childhood experience that I won't go into other than to name it. And that was I developed... Um, obsessive compulsive disorder and actually became psychotic at 10. And I lived in a really frightening reality where I thought all the little rituals from hand washing to about 10 others were going to keep my parents and brother from being killed by headhunters. That's, you know, that was the psychosis. And I lived in a state of Abject terror doesn't even begin to describe it for about six months. And I recovered from it through a spiritual experience. You know, I had been sent to a Jewish girls camp uh, when I was eight. So I was there my the summer of my eighth and ninth year. And this was now my 10th year. And I was afraid I wouldn't get to go back again. And I began to resource myself from memories of that camp, particularly the singing, the quiet, the silence, the chanting of old prayers. There was something that spoke to me very, very deeply that, that like brought me to a place of amazing peace. And so... One day I was sitting alone with my fears and I thought, I can't go back to camp next summer. I'm too sick to go back to camp. And I began to think about what it was like in the pine grove on a Friday night, you know, all these hundred or so little girls dressed in white, chanting these beautiful prayers, um, the wind and the pine trees, the sound of, you know, birds, the ripples of the lake that we could see. And it brought me to a place of transcendence. And in that place, I mean, you know, we've all had moments of deep intuition when we feel connected to something much larger than our own experience, much larger than our own desires, thoughts, beliefs, and in that place, at 10, I said, oh, I see. I mean, it was a moment of, of realization. And what I saw was that I had a choice. If I chose to continue doing the rituals, I would stay stuck there. And I was going simply to have to stop. And the question, of course, that immediately came up is, how can I stop because I think the headhunters are going to kill everybody unless I do the ritual. And I realized, but I don't feel that way at this moment. I'm in some other place. If I could just bring back this feeling that I have now, it would be okay, because this is the real place. The headhunters are just a mind place. That was so clear. And so I was able to, what happened was it just a little poem formed in my mind that connected me back to this experience? Um, shall I tell you the poem? I still yes. remember it. Please. I called it 
the light because you see oftentimes i think people think seeing the light is metaphoric it isn't you actually see the light uh many times in my life i've seen everything is made of light it looks like form but at times you can see the the light itself so that was the name of my poem at 10 the light and here is the poem somewhere in the darkest night there always shines a little light this light up in the heavens shines to help our god watch over us when a small child is born the light her soul does adorn so when our when our only human eyes look up in the lightless skies we must know we must know even though we cannot see that this light burns far into the night to help our god watch over us that poem still reconnects me to that transcendent space you know which is present within all of us uh we have little glimpses of it maybe from time to time i've been lucky because i've had a lot of really big glimpses and so you know when i do think about this pandemic and having hope uh i think of there's a larger level of hope on the spiritual um plane i know that all of us are at our own pace moving into greater wisdom and compassion into a greater sense of kindness and being able to dwell in the present moment and some people you know for some people they're beginners on that path and they don't look very nice right now and they don't act very nice but they'll eventually get there too that also helps at some level with the forgiveness question period although you know <laughs> sometimes it's like i think if i have to watch a certain person on the television i'm going to kick the damn thing in you're not going to get around that that's like a normal human response right so true there where you had this moment almost out of body experience to i just want to kick the tv in and like <laughs> but I, but I, I like how you said earlier and that's okay and that's okay too right i love that oh i love that so funny so to go back so as a woman as a woman and getting your doctorates at harvard and being a teacher and really a pioneer what was that experience like you were groundbreaking were there a lot of other women doing this work at that time there were a couple You know there was one really wonderful woman a good friend of mine Dr. Candice Pert who wrote a book called Molecules of Emotion and she was really a, what a brilliant woman uh and she had a big spat with the guy whose lab she worked in as a graduate student because it's typical in a laboratory that if you write a paper the first author is actually the head of that laboratory which at that time was all men and so she had identified the first one to identify that there was a receptor for opiates 
and therefore realized, oh my God, the body makes its own endogenous opiates. That's why things like, you know, these opiate-based drugs work. The scientist whose lab she was working in won the Lasker Prize, which is the forerunner to the Nobel Prize for Candace's work. And she was really pitching a fit about that. And in the end, this man spoke at her memorial service and gave such a touching uh, talk because in the 30 or so years that had intervened, more and more women had come into the field. But it was hard. I think for me it was doubly hard because I was a woman in a man's world And most of the men did not take very well to that. You know, I was patronized. Let's see, I was called, you know, everybody, when you teach at a medical school, you you have your teaching, you have your research, and then they expect civic responsibilities, like you need to be on committees. So I was on the library committee. And I remember one man leering at me and saying, ah, here's Joan, the most decorative member of our committee. And it was like that. You just get (laughs) patronized. Yeah, just the way it was said. But also, I think what was most difficult was this. Remember, you know, because I had quite a lot of notoriety because I was running an AIDS clinic. uh, And the beginning of the AIDS clinic, the first several years, Nobody lived. A very long survivor was maybe two years. And so I was running these mind-body groups for men with AIDS. And and the the hospital didn't want me to run them at the hospital because they were afraid nobody would sit in the chairs because we didn't know even that the virus caused it. We didn't know what the vector of infection was. Was it airborne? This... I just had the deepest feeling that I was safe. And so I was running these groups for men. They were all men in the beginning, men with AIDS. I was running these groups in the community at the home of one of the men who had AIDS. And it was a powerful time. But I was getting interviewed a lot, you know, for newspapers, magazines, um, and I was so committed to this. I was working day in and day out. And at that time, I got attacked by several male colleagues for being, they thought this was aggressive. I remember a reporter came to interview me in my office, and he's like this. He says, word on the street is you're really an aggressive woman. Read (laughs) bit. And (laughs) I was just, Somebody incredibly moved by the suffering, risking my life at that time to do everything that I could. And this, I think, was, was really is still a problem. Women who are devoted to a cause are not thought of as devoted, but as aggressive. Mm-hmm. And that, that we still have to deal with still going on and i think that was for me what touched me so deeply is when i was reading about ruth Bader ginsburg and and Mm. uh, everything 
she went through and how I loved how I love the part where she's sharing about how, you know, to influence people. She was just so lovely. I mean, talk about, you know, doing it so mindfully. You know, she didn't ever, it never felt like she really emasculated me neither the man. She kept her no. ego intact, kind of worked around them, you know. She was really great. She's yeah. such a, like you said, left a legacy for all of us to continue and remember who we are. And it's also a mindset, a perception of somebody else and where we can get to the point where it doesn't matter what somebody else's perception is because that calling is so deep within you that, you know what, it's okay that we get aggressive about it sometimes. Yes. Sometimes we have to, right? And that's the mama bear in us. It's the nurture in us. It's also warrior in us. I mean, women, we wear a lot of labels and titles. Right. And you know what? I say, so what? I don't care. I just want to get the job done. And sometimes I can get it done nicely. Sometimes I get it done more aggressively. But <laughs> you try to try to keep the ego away and do it in through the spirit, I think is the difference. What I've learned yeah. in my 60 some odd years yeah. is when you can take up the sword in a very powerful, loving way. In earlier days, I thought taking up the sword, I was very loud with it. With <laughs> yeah, it was off with your head. With and, your head. Yeah, now I just say it quietly inside me. But Joan, thank you so much for your time. And before we go, you have such incredible programs that you've developed that we want our listeners to know about. And I believe you have one going on right now as Graceful 360. Is that correct? Graceful. 360, there, there are f every season of three months, um, we open it again, and people can join anytime. It's, it's really an inexpensive program, and it focuses, it's kind of like, um, I would say it's a spiritual sangha with tools, spiritual tools and practical tools that you can use, and it involves, you know, we Zoom together once a month. Every month I post a new meditation that I've done. And one of those character strengths, um, you know, uh, I post. So in fact, gratitude was the character strength of this month. Next month, the character strength, we work on installing it in ourselves will be forgiveness. And so maybe, you know, maybe I need to join that one. <laughs> It's, you know, it's wonderful because you can do well or do a lot. And then it's seasonal. We try to attune ourselves back to nature because nature is the great teacher. So there's always like a cool ritual in there. Um, you know, Samhain is coming up. And then actually, usually in Santa Fe, we have a retreat in the fall and one in the winter. We can't run a retreat this year but on halloween Samhain, <laughs> as you know that's a, a cross-quarter day between the autumnal equinox and the winter solstice and we change as the earth change we're not separate we're part of nature and so we'll be doing just a, a friday evening and a saturday program called loving your legacy and we're going to look at the ancestral streams in our life, we're going to have fun where, you know, since I'm in New Mexico, 
It's the day of the dead. We'll have masks for the day of the dead. We'll make an ofrenda, this amazing altar. Love it. And it's going to be totally meaningful and lots of fun. And then we have another evening and one day retreat called Seasons of Light in December because you've got the solstice, you've got Christmas, you've got Hanukkah, you've got Kwanzaa, you've got all the festivals of light. So it will be an interspiritual, cross-cultural experience. And then my, my very favorite program ever, which is the Gifts of Spiritual Memoir, will be starting <clears throat> October 8th. And even if people have to miss a session or two, it's worth joining that. You know, I started a Gifts of Spiritual Memoir retreat. It's six weeks People didn't want to stop at the end of six weeks. So we went for another six weeks and another six weeks. And now I've got some students that will have finished 24 weeks getting together weekly and really discussing the meaning of our lives and writing. There's a time for writing and then sharing writing. It's so deep. And then I think starting... Mid-October, I'm doing a free Zoom every Wednesday night for four Wednesdays, helping people to flourish in the madness. It's really, we're calling it kindred spirits, because we all need a sangha. Mm. That is beautiful. Could you tell our listeners where they can find you and find all these You can can find everything by going to joanborisenko.com. So you have to be able to spell my name, J-O-A-N-B as in boy, O-R-Y-S-E-N-K-O. And everything, you know, you can sign up for my emails and or just register for any one of these programs off the website. So... Beautiful. We hope to and we'll have all those links on too for you. So, Joan, we have our favorite question we ask at the end of every interview. So, our show is called <coughs> Open Your Throne. And we would like to know from you what does owning your throne mean? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. For me, it means owning my own values, particularly. My basic value and birthright as as a child of the divine, mm-hmm. recognizing I am a divine child, so are we all. And when I own that throne within me, it's like one of those namaste moments because that helps me see it in everybody else. So that's owning my throne. So at the spiritual level, that's what owning my throne would be all about. At a basic human level, owning my throne has everything to do psychologically with valuing myself, being kind to myself, recognizing, okay, uh, you know, if I make a mistake, that's just human. So that's great. Also, to own my throne means an end to people-pleasing. I love to please people. However, 
Uh, I have found that unless my boundaries are really good and I own my throne and I know what I need, unless I take care of myself first and keep those boundaries strong, then I cannot give with a pure soul to others. I end up feeling resentful. So, Amen. Good boundaries. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. Wow. And do well, what I love. You know, trying to make a difference for all of us in our own ways. You are. You do. You're one of our greatest, my most precious teachers and spiritual teachers and so many gifts God has blessed you with. And and we are so, just so talk about grateful Mm -hmm. about having you on our podcast, Joan. Thank you. Thank you so much for your beautiful lessons. Yeah. Thank you. It was such fun. Thank you so much, Piri, for doing this for us all. And thank you, Diane. It was just great to spend this time with you. What a treat. We love you. All right, everyone. Well, thank you for joining us on another episode of Own Your Throne. And I know this is a very special episode for you because um, Dr. Joan has just shared so many pearls of wisdom for us all. And the key to it is not to just know this, but to act on them, to do them. So that if you are finding yourself flourishing, not flourishing so well in this madness, you have keys and tools to activate and to really make them part of your life. And I want to remind everyone to please go to our website, www.ownyourthrone.co, and you can download uh, Dr. Jones' free gift, which is a video series that is amazing. And uh, you can also go to our podcast page, Own Your Throne, and subscribe and also leave comments for us and let us know who you want to hear from, what topics you would like us to, to discuss. So thank you everyone for joining us. And next time we'll see you on Own Your Throne. This podcast was created by Perry and I because we both met at school getting our master's in spiritual psychology, where we learned the tools and techniques to really heal, reclaim, and redefine the second chapters of our lives. And you'll also learn some tools and techniques from our guest. All you have to do is go and subscribe and leave some comments. Let us know what you think about the shows, as well as maybe you have some ideas of other guests that we could have. So enjoy the conversations, and we look forward to hearing from you. And be sure and check out our website, which is ownyourthrone.co. And we have some freebies for you, so be sure and check us out.